Hello, everyone. Many organisations are throwing huge amounts of money at wellbeing initiatives and campaigns. Given the current war for talent, are they simply trying to keep up with or exceed what other organisations are doing? Is this just the latest fashion or is it a strategic must-have? Let's find out. Welcome to the Changing the World of Work podcast, where we provide insightful, practical content to untangle and demystify workplace change. I'm Karen Plum, Director at Advanced Workplace Associates, where we combine science with nearly 30 years experience helping organizations change the way they work for the better. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I was joined by Trevor Aldridge and Ken Van Summeren of Boost Cognition, and we explored the impact of well-being on individual team and organizational performance. I'm sure lots of organizations are focusing on well-being initiatives, but despite big campaigns, many seem to only preach to and attract the converted. If well-being is to endure, it needs to become part of your organizational strategy. Otherwise, it's in danger of being a money pit, a vanity project, or seen as something that's nice to have, particularly when everyone else is doing it. In short, you need to know what you're trying to achieve. To dig into this, I invited Trevor and Ken back to the podcast, and we're joined this time by AWA's Senior Change Management Consultant, Anna Ballet. I started by asking Ken to remind us, what do we mean by the term well-being? So when we talk about well-being, really what we mean here is how we feel, how we feel within ourselves. It's about our health, and really importantly, it's about our capacity for performance. And a nice analogy here is thinking about the battery on our smartphone. And we often talk about well-being almost being the power status on your smartphone. Of course, we're very good at keeping an eye on our smartphone, seeing where the battery charge is, plugging in when it needs recharging. Very often, we're less good at doing this with ourselves. So recognizing when battery power is coming down, And again, plugging ourselves back in and recharging through good quality rest, recovery and well-being behaviours. But I think it's also important to consider well-being in its holistic sense. So this is physical, mental and emotional well-being. And just like the the battery in our smartphone, there's one battery to to do all those different things. So again, we have one battery or one capacity, if you like, to do all these things. And whether it's physical strain by going for a hard run, mental strain by a really busy day at work, or emotional strain through personal relationships, it all takes its toll. And it's all cumulative. So if we have particularly challenging uh, aspects in one area of those, then our capacity or our power to take on the others will come down. So it's really important that we consider both what happens at work, but also what happens in our personal time as well. Um, And we can't possibly be at our best or even maintain our health and well-being without considering both what happens at work and what happens at home. And we always talk about a really nice way of thinking about this is how can we bring our best selves to work and take our best selves home again? So we're coming in with high battery power and we're going back in a decent state and we are recharging. And we're doing that throughout the day, throughout the 24-hour period. So that hopefully explains what we mean by well-being. 
And listening to you talking about the smartphone battery, I was thinking that as the smartphone gets older, the battery doesn't last so long, does it, before it needs charging up? That resonates with me. <laughs> yeah, see we, see, we try and flip that the other way. And I guess taking a sort of growth approach to it and, you know, a lot of my background is from high-performance sports. And the reason why athletes train is to increase the capacity of that battery. And we can do exactly the same. So, yes, to some extent, we're, we're fighting biology as we get older, but through getting the balance between strain, physical, mental and emotional, but also the periods of rest and recovery, we can actually enhance our battery power. or We can enhance our capacity to take on the tasks of daily life. OK, I'd like to bring Trevor in here. Trevor, why should organisations care about well-being? Well, they certainly should care because well-being and performance are clearly linked, especially with knowledge workers. Um, Organisations striving for better performance, usually thought of in terms of increased productivity, should start by ensuring their people can bring their best selves to work each day. They should adopt the mantra, a better you is a better us. And There's been a great temptation over the last two years in particular to consider survey data and look only at the mean or look mainly at the mean result and say, well, on average, people say they're more productive and they say they feel better. But we encourage leaders in particular to take note of the distribution of that data. If leaders do take note of the distribution, they soon see there's a significant percentage of people who are struggling. Whether It's feeling less connected, they report, some of them, lonely even, or simply exhausted by virtual work styles probably dominated by digital comms. I think I I mentioned on the last podcast, Unilever did a really nice analysis of their own investments in well-being, and they showed a a two-and-a-half-fold uplift in productivity, so return on investment. So here's a company that does well-being very well, And it's important to note that it can either be done very well and done strategically, which is what we're going to talk about today, or it can be done in a slightly shotgun tick box approach where very seldom does it pay. So that's a really important one. You know, well-being pays. And if that stands to reason, we've already discussed, we can't be at our best, we can't be productive, we can't perform unless we look after our health and well-being. So... Clearly, there's no good having all our team in the office or working remotely if we're working under performance with flat batteries. And another nice analogy here is we know if we get it wrong and by wrong, so low levels of battery power, this could be fatigue from inadequate recovery, high levels of chronic stress, maybe suboptimal working conditions, so lots of distraction, maybe mood and motivation is low, then scientific research has shown that cognitive function, so this is decision-making, information processing, is impaired by the same extent as being over the blood alcohol limit for driving in the UK and indeed most countries. So in effect, we have teams of people drunk on the job So clearly we don't want that. We have to avoid that. And again, I think it's important to say, Trevor spoke about well-being for performance. This isn't just about reducing sickness absenteeism. This is about how can we take everyone 
who is fine, maybe trundling along, feeling a little bit tired at times. How can we take them on and give them another 10%, 20%, 30% greater energy and battery power to be able to do the job? It strikes me that a lot of organisations may tinker around the edges with this sort of stuff. And it's done at a tactical level, maybe even something that we think we ought to do, but it's not actually part of their strategy. And so inevitably, it doesn't really have the level of importance or acceptance as maybe it should do. And uh, organisations are really serious about this sort of thing. Surely it's important that it is part of their strategy. Yeah, it definitely is because it needs to be embedded. And if you want something that's actually going to be sustainable over time, it needs to be part of the organization's strategy. We need to understand why are we actually doing this and be very specific on what we're trying to achieve and how it links to the organization's goals and strategies. Because otherwise, I think there might be a tendency of, you know, coming up with some sexy initiatives that are more like gimmicks, but maybe cost quite a lot of money, take a lot of of resources, but don't necessarily deliver real results. The danger is that it's about fads and fashions and everybody else is doing it. So I need to do it as well. Um, And I'm not really sure why I'm doing it. So knowing why you're doing it, I guess, is the first thing. How complicated is it to to put this sort of an initiative into place? How would an organisation go about it? I would say it's not at all complicated, but that's if you adopt a process. And what we've done at Boost has been to develop a a very easy to adopt process. And I should stress that it's a process rather than a campaign. So much of well-being has been campaign led. It's been a let's do the Everest step challenge this month. And that's something which is over quickly and soon forgotten and probably has little enduring effect. It needs to be, as Anna was just saying, needs to be something that's embedded in working practices and role modelled by leaders and managers. That's the way that you get an enduring effect from it. And we begin by educating leaders, uh, then equipping them with a set of tools and clear instructions and provide world-class support to help and guide them. With that, it can be quickly and easily put in place and it will certainly have an enduring effect. Right. So it's important to start with the leaders. Is that is that quite a challenge, Ken? I mean, it, in your experience, is it easy to get the leaders on side? Well, I think it depends what the organisation is trying to do. And I think both Trevor and Anna have mentioned the, the campaigns and the risk of this being tick box. I, I think for the organisations who might still see it, as exactly that, then yes, it is hard to engage the leaders, but they're probably not the organisations where we're going to make the greatest impact with, and therefore where we're probably going to spend less time. But certainly if an organisation is serious about this, then, you know, starting with the leadership is so important because not only do the leaders set the tone, the leaders have such a profound ripple effect across the organisation so, you know, both in terms of their energy, their positivity, their high performance behaviours, but also just how they go about recognising and valuing well-being for performance. And so, yes, sometimes it is challenging and providers might go in and try and deliver something to the workers at scale. But of course, if there isn't 
organizational leadership buy-in, then inevitably there's going to be friction and there's going to be challenges. And we do hear it where we're talking with employees and they go, yeah, this is great, but, and there's too many buts. And of course, we always try and move from the but to what can I do? But inevitably, you know, you could be banging your head on a, on a, on a glass ceiling here. So yeah, really important to get the leaders engaged. I think increasingly so, they are becoming engaged. One of the things, just to pick up on Trevor's point there, around the, the approach we take at Boost, yes, it's about engaging the leaders first. And I think there's two key mechanisms by which we can do that. One is really illustrating the importance of well-being, what it means for performance. So not, it's not just this fluffy, nice-to-have thing over here. It's about it actually pays. It makes a difference in so many ways. And turning that into what is relevant for them. Anna spoke about the organisational objectives and how it has to be aligned with that. So again, you know, what, what are their pinch points? What are their pain points? What, what are their struggles and challenges with their teams and organisations? And we need to join those up. The second mechanism is giving leaders the opportunity to go through some energy strain and recovery measurement. So we use wearable technology and we can actually measure what's happening in the day at work and indeed outside of work in terms of battery power coming down, the level of strain, and when we're recharging and re-energizing as well. And there's a beautiful moment where people see their own data or this X-ray of their own day and go, wow, that's what a day of back-to-back -back online meetings looks like versus a day where I can get my head down and really engage in some energizing, enjoyable, strategically important work. Similarly, this is what these lifestyle behaviors do to me, and this is what these other lifestyle behaviors do to me. So that can be really, really powerful and quite profound in terms of that leadership engagement. And it sounds like, as with any change that we're trying to make, we need a proper change process. Anna, I mean, can you, can you outline some of the basic principles that we need to put in place when we're trying to make this sort of a change with people, other than just showing them the impact of their data? Sure, I completely agree, of course. And I think Ken and, and Trevor have already covered the main parts of it, which is very much in any change process, it's leadership engagement. And I think one of the things you can do here, because especially what the gentlemen here are talking about is something that's pretty measurable and it can become very visual. Uh, the whole element in change process is also of monitoring and evaluating because all of a sudden, you you know, leaders that may not have been engaged before, once they actually see the effects of this and the results of this, they will be motivated to come on board. So, you know, just generally constantly coming back to the success criteria, what are we trying to achieve? How are we doing? Is there any progress? Maybe in some of these teams where team leads really have been engaging, there is excellent progress and they can showcase that. And I think that's a, a super important part of that change process. We're talking about you know, the process of change and, and making this strategic. What are the pitfalls of not taking a strategic approach to this and not really doing it in the way that we're discussing? Well, I think the first pitfall is throwing money down a hole, to be honest. Um, an awful lot of money can be spent. Discussions over springtime, you know, hearing of global organisations, but just their UK outfits alone spending astronomical amounts of money on well-being programmes 
from, in some cases, over 60 providers for one company. Now, this is great in terms of what's offered to employees, but we know from industry um, research that there's a massive disconnect between provision and engagement. And clearly, if there's a disconnect or mismatch between provision and engagement, there's going to be an even larger one between provision and impact and return on investment. So unless it all joins up, and Anna spoke about this really nicely earlier on, it has to align to the company objectives. What's important to them and what are we trying to achieve? So I think that's the first point. And align to that, as again, Anna said there, that the need to evaluate progress and impact. I think that is really important. Yes, there's, there's an argument that says, well, we know this is the right thing to do for our people, so let's invest. And that's very nice, very philanthropic, but um, most organizations need to achieve more than that. And there's a combination of things we can do here. We, we can look at the well-being and the energy levels and the cognitive function of individuals. We can do it at a team level as well. So again, using some of this technology and we can work with organizations to say, well, you know, what are the metrics that matter most to you? And we sh absolutely should be identifying those up front and then measuring them and evaluating them over time. Otherwise we, we are at risk of shooting in the dark here. So that's sort of one area of pitfalls. And I think, a second one, perhaps aligned to that, is there really is no one size fits all. I think for all the reasons that we've all been talking about. Yes, there's good principles, but actually how we embed it, we've used that term so many times already, embedding it, how we do that depends on the organisation, their culture, their ways of working and what their particular challenges are. Trevor spoke about campaigns, and unfortunately, a lot of money has been spent on campaigns. And what they tend to do is engage those people who are already into well-being. And you know, cycle to work schemes are great, but very often what they do is incentivize those who already do a lot of cycling to spend more money on a new bike and get some bonuses by doing that. You know, the, the translation into actually making the behavior change and the well-being change for those who need it most or who could benefit the most isn't always there. So I think there's some of the key pitfalls to watch out for. And I guess what you're referring to, at least tangentially, there is the presence of proper change management so that people understand or have the opportunity to understand what's in it for them to be supported. Anna, I'm sure you've got plenty of examples of where the change management has been poor, but what are the risks here if we don't do it properly? How much time do we have, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> I think, first of all, you know, what change management, we throw that word around. What do we mean by that? Really, it's about supporting changes to human behavior. Now, if we want to support changes to human behavior, people need to rationally understand how they need to change behavior, why, what that's going to achieve for them, uh, what they need to do, what are the new habits they need to adopt. But that's not enough. 
they've also got to be motivated to do so. So they not only need the rational understanding, they also need an emotional engagement. This is what I find to be the most difficult thing. There's so much going on. There's so much information. There are so many good things you could be doing. So what's going to make you emotionally engaged to want to focus specifically on changing these habits uh, in a world where there are so many other priorities on the short term? So that's sort of one of the the pitfalls, I would say, of not getting that right, developing that uh, clear change management process that's going to give you both the rational understanding and the emotional engagement of your people. Can I ask you what you mean by emotional engagement? What does that look like? I think it's a question of being motivated to actually adopt those new habits. So we don't want to adopt new habits. We're sort of, our brain is hardwired to use the habits that we already have and not to have to create new ones because that just takes a lot of energy. So we need to be sufficiently emotionally engaged to actually override that mechanism of just falling back on old habits. And that's quite a big thing to be able to do. Yeah. So I'm motivated to want to give this a try. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So just to build on that from an individual and a team perspective. So that really resonates with what we do around behavior change and habit change strategy, because again, sometimes through the power of data or just people being better informed and having eyes open to what, what is possible here in terms of enhancing their battery power and their well-being for performance. So some of what we do is very much one-to-one or one-to-few well-being coaching. And this is all about, you know, the gain has to be greater than the effort required. So it's all about how can we make very often quite small nudges or quite small changes for big impact. Because we know any coach, business coach or sports coach or anyone else is going to know if you're trying to get people to do something that takes enormous effort, they inevitably will not stick to it. So firstly, they need the reason to believe. So what is the goal? And we've spoken about the organisations need to know what they're trying to do here. Individuals and teams and leaders need need to know as well. Really clear sight off what this means for me. And we get people thinking about, you know, if you were to improve your well-being, what would you do with that? Because it's all well and good saying, oh, great, my well-being's better. But so what? What do you want to do with it? Is it go home less stressed? So you're not shouting at your partner and kids. Is it have more energy at the weekend to do more exercise? Is it be more productive and in better mood at work? Is it, you know, increase sales or get the next promotion? Whatever it might be, but it's got to be really personal and tangible to you. And then it's a case of, well, what are the steps that we need to put in place to do that? And a lot of these well-being for performance habits and behaviors can be relatively small tweaks. And very often it's about getting the basics right. Think about the quality of our rest and recovery. Thinking about how we structure our day so we're not frying our minds with back-to-back online meetings. Taking just a couple of minutes every hour just to pause, reduce the strain and recharge. Completely agree with what Anna's saying there, both at an individual and organisational level. The site of the gain and the benefit has to exceed the effort that goes in. Otherwise, it simply won't stick. 
Anna, is there a danger that as we focus more and more on individual performance and making sure that people have absolutely the right support and have what they need, et cetera, are we creating also a culture of entitlement? I think that definitely can be a pitfall, especially in the world today where the war for talent is a real thing. Everybody wants to be the most amazing place to work and we're catering to those individual needs and it it becomes very much a focus on me and my. And that really contradicts what we're trying to do because that doesn't necessarily create a culture. If you're creating a culture of entitlement, that's not necessarily particularly considerate it doesn't necessarily create a community that's kind or or sustainable with regards to well-being it could be the opposite of having you know a sense of psychological safety and trust and community and connectedness so it's actually counterproductive of what we're trying to achieve and i think it's so important in all this not just talking about what's the organization going to do for you, but really focusing on how do employees need to contribute themselves to create a culture where well-being is in the focus? What can we do? What are, what are the attitudes and the values that we are bringing to work every day? How am I contributing to my team to create a community that's feel psychologically safe where we can trust each other and where we can thrive. There's a lot of individual responsibility in that. It's not just up to the organization. And I think the organizations that are going to succeed with this are the ones that dare to also ask something here of their staff and not just the other way around. Yeah. So it's about getting the balance right, isn't it? Um, And and that takes us back to the strategy, indeed, and what, what we're trying to achieve. So just to wrap up for organizations that are thinking about doing this sort of thing, where's a good place to start? Let me sort of set the scene on that by saying I think the first thing that has to happen is that leaders or senior team members must first acknowledge that organizational goals linked to performance, quality and innovation are harder to achieve unless everyone is at their best. Uh, It may be possible to go flat out for a while but only when well-being is embedded as part of the working culture can the highest levels be sustained over long periods by people who have the resilience to take it in their stride, who have the built capacity to be able to perform well and to remain at their very best. I think we have to start with the why. Of course we do. And it's identifying what the problem we're trying to solve is, or put in more performance language, what's the opportunity that we're trying to seize here? And I spoke earlier about the the problem might not be entirely visible. Sickness absenteeism is visible. People operating at 80% rather than 100% probably isn't particularly visible. And I think it takes a really proactive and ambitious organization and leadership team to start exploring the art of the possible and just say, how much better could we all be? And and yes, there's an individual responsibility to that. There's definitely team and teamship, which is critical to this. And of course, what the organization can do to support it. So I think my 
the place to start is really clear. You know, why are we doing this? What do we want to achieve? What are you trying to achieve? Such a great question. Are you following the fashion by implementing a bunch of disconnected initiatives to give the impression that the organization cares about well-being? Or is there something very strategic that you're trying to address? Maybe a shortcoming or a much needed change in direction for which even a small improvement of performance would make all the difference. My thanks to Anna, Trevor and Ken for exploring the importance of looking at well-being strategically. I hope we've given you food for thought. If you'd like to connect with any of our speakers to discuss the topic further, please drop me a message. There are details in our show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Changing the World of Work podcast. Please follow or like the show so you don't miss any of our content. You can find more information on this episode in our show notes, including a link to the AWA website if you'd like to know more about us. Hope to see you next time. Goodbye.